0: Literature is the most powerful technology that humans have ever invented. Why? Because literature allows us to get more out of our brain. And our brain is the most powerful thing on earth, for good or for ill. With literature, you can make your brain its best possible self. You can troubleshoot its emotional hitches, freeing it from anger and pessimism and grief you can boost its kindness and its hope. You can make it more inventive, more adaptive, more resilient, more imaginative, more scientific, more impartial, and more visionary. So that's a quote from my guest today, Mr. Angus Fletcher. And before you skip ahead to the conversation, I really would love for you to to just hear this bio, to hear his biography, to get a sense of who this guy is because he's just done some really cool things. So Angus Fletcher is a professor of story science at Ohio State's Project Narrative, the world's leading academic think tank for the study of stories. He has dual degrees in neuroscience and literature, received his PhD specializing in Shakespeare from Yale, taught Shakespeare at Stanford, and has published two books and dozens of peer-reviewed academic articles on the scientific workings of novels, poetry, film, and theater. His research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And he has done story consulting on projects for Sony, Disney, the BBC, Amazon, PBS, and Universal. And he is also the author and presenter of the Audible Great Courses Story Guide to Screenwriting. So he's done some phenomenal things. And in this episode, we dive deep into the concept of how our stories, how the narratives that we live within really make our lives, they really direct our lives. And furthermore than that, how we can use literature, how we can use the power of story and narrative to shift our neurology, to shift our lives, our behaviors, our perspective This is a really fascinating conversation. I mean, we touch on the impact of stories and narrative on AI and how it might be the missing link uh, to progressing artificial intelligence. We talk about how uh, literature was invented, how we evolved to invent literature, which is just a fascinating concept unto itself. And then we get into how we as individuals and how we are socially um condition to use story and how we can begin to use that story to our personal individual relational benefit you know you've probably heard the saying words create worlds and the the stories that you live in create your behaviors right they create your beliefs and so change your thoughts change your life i think that was dr wayne dyer so we actually talk about how that functions and what that looks like and Angus sheds some light on all of these uh, different aspects of the human experience and how literature intersects with all of it. Uh, before I welcome him on, just a quick ask, uh, a really, really important ask. So over the years, you know, I've been running this podcast for about six years and for a while I asked people to, to leave us a rating and review and that's done some miracles And so if you have 60 seconds today, I would really appreciate if you love this podcast, because I get messages from you guys all the time, right? I get messages on Instagram, you know, guys saying, I love this podcast. Women saying, I learned so much from this podcast. If you haven't done so already, head over to whatever platform you listen to this on and please leave me a, a review, leave me a rating. I would love to hear your thoughts and it helps to elevate the show. You know, there's hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of podcasts now. And so this actually helps to rank the show higher on platforms like Spotify and Apple Music to let other people know that this is a show worth tuning into. So please take 60 seconds today to go do that. And outside of that, please share an episode that you've really enjoyed with somebody. You know, one of my favorite things is to share podcast episodes with my with my close friends and then have conversations about it, you know, and say, I love this part. I love when they talk about this. and Uh, You know, I'd never even thought about that idea before. And so, if you find value in this conversation or any of the conversations, please do share this episode. It goes a long, long way into getting the Man Talk Show into the ears and onto the phones of the people that you care about most. So, with that said, please welcome Mr. Angus Fletcher. All right, Angus, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Connor. I'm excited to be here.
0: Likewise, likewise. It's it's a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, a friend of mine put me in touch with you and sort of put me into your work, which is really fascinating in, in many ways. And so I'm excited to dive in. Uh, but Before we kind of get into the, into the main body of what we're going to talk about today, i to ask you the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today.
1: Probably the most defining moment in my life was when I was 17 years old and I just first got to college and I was just completely disenchanted. Because my whole life I've been told that, you know, when you get to college, you're going to get the answers. You know, that's the thing that you kind of strive for your entire young life is get into college, get into college, get into college. And then I just got there and like all my classes are pretty boring. I mean, you know, it just wasn't that interesting to me. And I come from an immigrant family. And so my family was obsessed with becoming a doctor. So it was a lot of pre-med stuff, a lot of science. But, you know, I was also taking general ed, you know, so I was, you know, I was in like a philosophy class and everything. But... But it was still, I mean, it was still just not really that interesting. You know, it was just kind of like more school and I just wasn't really that into it. And uh, I basically called up my parents and told them I was going to quit after about two weeks because I just, it was like, this is totally pointless. And I remember I had my mom, of course, panicked and I had this conversation with her and she was like, don't you think there's one person on this campus that can teach you something that you would be interested in? And I was like, yeah, I was like, there's probably one person on this campus that could teach me something interesting. And she's like, well, go find them. Hmm. Go find that person instead of going there and sitting there in your room and sort of expecting the the information to come to you and expecting that if you just like kind of follow the rules and do what you're told, go seek. You have this huge resource. And so literally I just thought to myself, like, what is the thing I'm most interested in? And I'm like, I'm most interested in the human brain. I mean, what is going on in the human brain? So I just walked into – the neuroscience department and just walked into this lab where they were literally like doing brain scans and, and anatomizing animals. And I was like, <laughs> can you teach me something? And they're like, who the hell are you? How did you get in here? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. And basically at 17 years old, I managed to talk my way into being like a researcher in this lab. And that kind of launched me in my whole career. And now when that was, you know, I mean, there was, my mom was right. There was probably a lot more than one person I could learn from, but it all started from that moment of just kind of taking control of myself.
0: Very cool, and so but so, where does the connection to literature come in for those that that don 't know you and just kind of set up what we 're going to talk about
1: so yeah, so I worked in this science lab for for many years, studying kind of the brain and how it worked, and I was fascinated, of course, but what I realized was that neuroscience at that time really viewed the brain largely as a kind of computer. They viewed it as a sense-making instrument that took in data and crunched the data and processed that data and then made good decisions or bad decisions and all this kind of stuff. And I realized that that really was not how my brain worked or how most human brain works at all. I mean, first of all, most human brains don't take on a lot of data. We're not like computers. Computers get smarter and smarter the more data you give them. And humans get overwhelmed almost immediately with any data we just mm-hmm. shut down and then just start going off gut instinct and whatnot. Um, humans are also driven by emotion very powerfully, um, you know, and a lot of our best choices actually do come from some kind of emotion in terms of, you know, courage or love or hope or something like that. And then, you know, there's this kind of magic thing of of creativity, of the ability not just to predict the future, which is what computers are trying to do, but to actually make a new future that no one has ever anticipated before, to be radically original, to be an artist in your life. And the brain can do all those things all the time. And we were surrounded by people all the time who create things that are unprecedented, that no one would have guessed, that they themselves wouldn't have guessed. And like, how is the brain doing that? Where is that coming from? Where does courage come from? So those are the kinds of things I got interested in. And so... Since no one in the science lab was really had any idea how to even begin studying those questions, I thought to myself, well, you know, people in the arts know a lot about emotion and know a lot about creativity and know a lot about these things. So why don't I go off and study literature and then I'll come back to the science lab and kind of sort of marry the two. And that was sort of, again, another moment of me sort of just wandering off basically mm-hmm. and trying to seek knowledge.
0: Interesting. I mean, it, it almost sounds like there's... The limited amount that I know about neuroscience, because I've had a, a few people from the neuroscience field on the on the show before, but the limited amount that I know, it, it's almost like we've, for a period of time, we approached looking at the brain like looking at a computer, right? Just input and output. And it's very fascinating to look at it from a, a story perspective, to look at it from a very different angle, which, you know, I think your work in, in many ways addresses I have to ask the question. You know, you're 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 a professor of story science. And so I would just love for you to unravel that a little bit uh for the listener.
1: Yeah, well first of all I have to be honest and say that I invented story science. So, you know, I mean just so whether or not it exists after me, who who knows. But um But basically, this all came about because I started to realize that so much of what the human brain does is it basically makes plans and plots. And you just think about what you do on a regular basis is you tell yourself stories or narratives about what you're going to do that day or what you could be. You tell yourself narratives and stories about your past and so on and so forth. And it turns out that this is a huge engine of the human brain, the stories we tell ourselves. and. Those parts of the brain are very ancient. Um, they predate uh, the human brain. They go back into what we would call our motor regions. Our, uh, you know, the motor regions of the brain—they control our arms and legs. They tell us what to do, and they basically pump out actions. What is an action? An action is a narrative. It's a story of this happens, then that happens, then that happens. You know, so I just really got interested in these kind of deep motor regions of the brain. Many of which are, are non-conscious. Many of them which run on story, hmm. which is something that computers and AI. Uh, cannot do at least not at present, and so I wanted to study that empirically, and then that just kind of led me on this quest to invent this field.
0: Yeah, I was curious. Like, do you feel in terms of the future stages of artificial intelligence? Maybe you don't know, have an answer to this necessarily, but do you feel like part of the missing link to creating something like artificial general intelligence or artificial superintelligence is the capacity to teach machines? how to think in a story-based manner? Like, is story a part of the missing equation from that?
1: Yeah, so this is actually a large part of my work. And if people want, they can read. I've written in Wired and a bunch of other places on this. But this all actually got started because I got hired by an AI company to basically build a story-making computer. And the idea was basically, I mean, think how much richer you could be than Elon Musk if you could create an AI that could tell stories. Because not only could you take over Hollywood... But um, this computer could then essentially make plans and plots, which is to say it could take over everything. It could make business plans. It could make business strategies. You know, It could make military plans. It could m- make military strategies. So if you could get an AI to do narrative, it would be the most powerful thing in the entire world. Hmm. And because I'm considered to be the world's expert in the science of narrative, I was brought in by these big AI companies and said, all right, we got it. This is the last problem. This is the final frontier. And what my own research has concluded, and again, you can read this uh, i've published this in a lot of peer reviewed articles is that computers will never do narrative because mm-hmm. their hardware doesn't allow them to do it, and we actually have to invent a new kind of machine, and this is something I'm talking about with folk at MIT and DARPA about but we'd need to invent a new kind of machine to actually process narrative and so I'm a little skeptical about the idea of, of artificial general intelligence in you know in general to be to be to be frank, but mm-hmm. if we were to get there, I think it would require us. Pairing a computer with another kind of machine and together those two machines could kind of do the logic which is what the computer does and the narrative which is what the other machine would do and then putting those together would allow it to kind of both do math and also plan.
0: Fascinating, and so I mean, I feel like instantaneously I wanted to hear a conversation between you and Lex Friedman. I don't know if you're familiar with his podcast, but I was like, I was like, oh, I mean, I'm very limited on the AI, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning front, and so I don't even know necessarily what questions to to ask outside of is, is it just that machine learning is a more linear process and story based is a much more I don't even know how to describe, but it. it's, it's a much more unidirectional process of thinking. Like, how would you describe the difference between between those two?
1: I can explain it pretty simply. So first of all, I just want to knock out. It doesn't have anything to do with consciousness. Um, doesn't have anything to do with fuzzy thinking or fuzzy logic or anything like that. It turns out computers are actually better at fuzzy thinking uh, because of Bayesian statistics than humans are. Um, hmm. doesn't have anything to do with analog or anything like that. It has to do with a very simple fact that computer brains are made up of logic gates, And logic gates work in terms of equations, just like math does. So what's on the left side of the equation equals what's on the right side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And that's why computers think in correlations. They're always correlating things. When you have something on, uh, when you have an equation, that exists in what's known as the eternal mathematical present. It just is. So two plus two is four. Bob is that man over there. That's how logical equations work. That's how math works. So it's all in this, in the is. Um, To have a story, you need to have an action. And an action is a cause and an effect. And a cause cannot occur at the same time as the effect. It has to occur slightly before the effect, and the effect has to occur after the cause. And so that means they cannot both take place at the same time. They cannot both take place in the present. One of them can take place in the present, but the other has to take place in the future. Or one can take place in the past, and the other can take place in the, in the, in the present. So what that means is that our brains, which can think in action, are doing something other than just thinking in equations. Mm-hmm. Um, they're thinking in a cause leads to that effect. And there's a different mechanism that drives that. And that's famously why computers cannot do what's known as causal reasoning. Um, there's all these kinds of interesting things like Judea Pearl's do calculus, which I'm sure if people in your audience know about AI, they'll know about, that are kind of attempts to kind of fudge that, but they all just turn causation into correlation. They turn it, causes and effects, into mix and matching sets and things like that. So the overall point is, it's just that computers don't really think in time in the way that we do. And they don't think that, you know, this does that. They think that, you know, smoke... Um, equals fire or fire equals smoke, whereas we think fire causes smoke. So Hmm. does that kind of make sense broadly?
0: Yeah, 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 100%. 100%. One hundred percent. Well, I feel like I could go a little further down that rabbit hole, but I don't want to deviate us too much from the content of the book and and why I actually wanted to you know have this conversation with you. Although you just got me really excited <laughs> about this previous conversation, I'm like oh geeking out a little bit. But I want to I want to return to this concept of of story. And you know I've read a little bit of your work. I can't remember where you wrote the article. I think it was for Harvard Business, and it was about, you know, don't brainstorm story think. And I love that. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of that word before. I would just love before we start to get into this concept of how, you know, stories create our worlds in many ways as human beings, right? There's a famous quote, words create worlds. And I think in many ways, that's what we're going to discuss is how you how you shift your stories. To maybe alter or change your life in some capacity. But tell me, tell the listener a little bit about what story think actually is.
1: Well, story thinking is just simply thinking in a story, it's just thinking in a narrative. It's thinking, I'm going to do this. It's thinking a plan. It's thinking a plot. And where it connects to our previous conversation is that a lot of the way that we train people to think now is by training them to think like computers. And so we train them in, in, you know, standardized tests or right and wrong answers and all these kinds of things. We train them in math. And your human brain has this huge potential to be trained differently, to be trained in actions, to be trained in stories. And if you want to release more of your potential, you don't want to just talk to it like it's an algorithm. You want to talk to it uh, like it's a story. There are thousands and thousands of different stories out there. And if you feed them into your brain and you really believe and buy into those stories and run them through your processing system, it will change your mental performance. It can make you braver. It can make you more resilient. It can help you process grief. It can help you process trauma. It can make you smarter. It can make you solve problems more effectively you do all these kinds of things and so my research is basically identifying these stories figuring out how to kind of upload them into people's heads so that we can do things that computers can't do um so that we can realize that in you know my opinion anyway the future is going to be made by humans and not by technology and in particular by humans who have figured out the stories to tell themselves that unlock their full potential Mm. well that's that sounds pretty damn exciting (laughs)
0: <laughs> I was like that that feels that feels hopeful you know <laughs> in many ways because I think yeah, I remember reading Yuval Herrera's book Sapiens and then Homo Deus and in Homo Deus he talked about how we're entering into this period or we will be at the time but I think we're there now where there there will wars will be fought on the intersubjective reality right war will be fought on narrative fronts And whoever controls narratives, whoever controls stories are the ones who will be able to direct policy, direct politics, direct the economy. And I think to some degree, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on this, I think to some degree that's always been the case. But we just haven't had the vehicle of delivery to control en masse the narrative that people believe. But now we're in this time where... There are sort of two opposing narratives, but I'm going to pause there and just and just sort of get your thoughts on on what I just said.
1: Well, here's why I'm an optimist, and I don't really agree with that future uh, that view of the future. I mean, I what I think is happening now is we're actually getting less and less narrative diversity. What people view as the kind of increasing power of media has actually taken away a lot of the narrative richness that previously existed in cultures and communities. It's all getting homogenized, and so I feel like mm. we no longer feel like we have any options. We feel like we either have to go blue or red. We feel like we have to go right or left, you know. And that is creating this enormous fragility in us. So I agree with the assessment that we're kind of locked in this place, which feels hopeless because the same narratives are being circulated over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. But the two ways that I see hope are, first of all, human brains have a history of inventing new narratives. And a huge part of the training that I do is to help people access the creativity in their brains to make up new stories, To see that there are new futures. Even though Disney is constantly feeding us the same story over and over and over again, even though Hollywood is feeding us the same story over and over and over again, there are millions and millions of potential stories out there. There's huge potential for freedom and change. Um, The second thing is is this whole idea that other people control our stories is completely false. The human brain is enormously resilient, and it wants to tell its own story to itself. And I want to assure everyone in the audience that they have control over their own stories. And so does everyone else in this world. We have control over the narratives that we put into our own heads. We have the opportunity to empower ourselves and change ourselves. The reason that we're struggling now is because the media landscape has actually deleted stories. And so what is happening is is we feel dispirited because we don't think that there are these choices out there. And so it's not so much that we're being brainwashed. I mean, most of us go and feel bored or disenchanted with a lot of these stories, but we just feel like there's no hope. So we're just Mm. like, I have to vote for this party as opposed to that party because these are my only alternatives. It's not because we're being controlled or brainwashed. I mean, I think that's an idea that we tell ourselves when we're in one political party and we want to kind of demonize the other political party. But the truth is, is no one in any political party really believes anything that their political party is saying. They only believe it insofar as they don't want to be in the other party, you know? Mm. We're all in this shared state of Enchantment. And so, to me, the big hope is that we are all radically free and we can create new stories. And I think hopefully the challenge of the next hundred years is for us all to have more courage, to create more new stories, and to take more ownership of the stories in our own heads and have the bravery to kind of go apart from the crowd and see the change that that can create in the lives around us. Mm so good
0: so good well let's maybe enter into the work that you put out in the book some of the concepts that you put out on the book by doing two things number one if you can expand a little bit on the importance of story on the individual on us as individuals and two if you can maybe just illuminate in a high level way the role of story historically within us
1: as a species Absolutely. So to start on the individual level, I mean, just some kind of basic examples of, of the importance of story. If when um, something occurs in your life that's negative, you say, oh, that's because uh, I'm hopeless or that's because the world is against me or so on and so forth. This creates this pessimistic narrative and you just start to give up. Hmm. If something negative happens to you and you say, that's a challenge, that's an opportunity, this is a moment for growth, if you tell yourself that story, you grow. And, you know, we know when we work with with individuals who are suffering from trauma or from grief, if they tell themselves the story, I can never heal, their odds of healing are very low. Hmm. If they tell themselves the story, I can heal, not I will heal, I will heal is magical thinking. But if you say I can heal, that's optimism. And that optimism radically increases the likelihood that you will actually heal. So that's a simple example of how the stories you tell yourself have a huge impact on your future growth and development. And this is something that wise people of all cultures across history have realized. And that's why um, whenever you go to someone for help, they always say to you, well, what's your story? Mm. Tell me how you got here. And then they tell you their story or they tell you other people, you know, stories of other wise individuals who have succeeded, who have triumphed in those situations. And the stories, those stories get recorded in culture. Uh, A lot of times early they get recorded as hero narratives or something like that. You know, this hero did this or this god did that or something like that. And then over time that has evolved into theater and plays and poetry and now novels and comic books and movies and tv and so we have this huge cultural repertoire of stories that have been developed by wise people and have been tested by audiences audiences have said this works you know this story really works it changes how i feel how i think how i operate and this big library is out there and you know most of us are just not really making a great deal of use of it instead we're spending a lot of time surfing the internet or social media or doing other things as opposed to kind of kind of taking this wisdom down, running it through our head circuits, and empowering ourselves to be more of the people who we ourselves choose to be. Hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, it was, you know, as I went through your book and and sort of contemplate some of the things that you were talking about, I mean, you start off by talking about the lost technology. And I think what you're talking about was literature as the lost technology. And it brought me to this interesting question that I realized I've never really asked myself before, which was just so strange, which is why was literature invented? Like, why did we create literature to begin with? Which is such a, I mean, it's one of those moments where I think there's very few moments where sometimes it's like, oh, I've never actually thought about that before. I've never asked myself that question of like, why does, because it's, you're just, you know, I just grew up with literature. I just grew up with books. I just grew up with writing. I just grew up with stories. And so it never occurred to me to even question the sort of evolutionary advantage or, or why would we have evolved as a species to, to create nobody else? No, no one else does this, right? Lions aren't scribing stories, you know, on the sides of trees and it just doesn't happen. And so it was really um, a profound moment, but I'll, I'll let you just sort of tackle that of, of sort of opening up the, the narrative of why literature uh, was, was actually invented to begin with.
1: Yeah, it's an amazing and weird question because nothing else in the world is your point. No other species goes around with, with literature. And I think a lot of times in the modern world, when we think about literature, we think of it largely just as a kind of drug, a kind of escapist thing, a kind of way to get out of our lives. I'm going to go watch a movie and forget about my life for a while. Or we think about it as a kind of brainwashing kind of propaganda tool that like, you know, people are trying to kind of, you know, control us and these kinds of things. And obviously that's, that couldn't have been the reason that it was invented in the first place. I mean, it couldn't have been invented as escapism in these life or death, uh, you know, situations tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago when everyone needed all their resources and they weren't going to just sit around, you know, kind of uh, dulling themselves like the lotus eaters. It had to have a real function. And so what was the function? Well, so what is a technology? A technology is just a, a fancy way of saying that it's something that humans make to solve a problem and you know most of the technologies that we invent in our in our world are to basically solve the problem of our world you know the world is too hot so we invent air conditioning there's not enough food in our world so we invent agriculture but it turns out that the world is not actually the biggest problem faced by humans because even if we as humans make our world perfect we're still really not that happy. Why are we not that happy? Well because the big problem faced by humans is ourselves. We're our biggest problem. And in particular, it's our brain that's our biggest problem. And our brain creates two kinds of related problems for humans. The first is it causes us to constantly fight with each other. Um, I mean, even if you love someone, you're constantly fighting with them. You're having these like meaningless, pointless disagreements all the time, you know, because you get restless or irritated or bored or something, you know, and, and so your brain is constantly creating all this inner social tension and conflict. And then in yourself, I mean, your brain is constantly getting anxious, um, you know, your brain is constantly getting frustrated. Your brain is constantly getting sad. Your brain is constantly losing a sense of what is the purpose? You know, mm. I mean, your brain is like this really smart thing. And it looks around the world and it's like, I'm going to die. What is the point? You know, it's like I've seen the end of my story already. The end of my story is death. What is the point? Um, mm. Why am I going on? Why does it even matter? And so... From the very beginning, human brains struggled with these problems. And so literature was generated to solve all of those problems, and it solves them all really wonderfully. I mean, literature can give you a purpose a meaning in life. It can answer. It can give you a sense of direction, even though you're going to die. It can give you the taste of immortality. I mean, the literature and scripture are actually synonyms. They both mean that which is written. And a lot of early literature really is stories about heaven, stories about afterlife, stories about how we can kind of live beyond ourselves. Um, Story can also help us not fight with each other. Uh, Story can bring us together. I mean, so many of our most powerful moments are shared stories, shared pieces of literature, shared poems, which unite communities, stop us from bickering. So really, the reason that technology was invented was to solve the problem of being human.
0: Hmm. So interesting. And I, you know, I feel like that goes back to what you were talking about before, which is that, you know, in sort of a simplified way that the stories that we believe and that we buy into individually can sort of make or break us in many ways. And, I you know, I think I've seen that in my own life where there was a long period of time, like my late teens and early 20s, where the stories that I held about myself were incredibly damaging, you know, very sort of abusive towards myself, very toxic towards myself. And and I didn't really have the tools or people in my life to challenge those stories. I mean, mostly because people didn't know that I was carrying those stories. You know, I'm stupid. I'm a piece of shit. I'm this, I'm that. And so I, what I hear you saying is that in many ways, stories, literature are also a vehicle for liberation, that there's a, a kind of... Uh, dare I say, salvation that can be found within literature. So can you maybe just speak a little bit to that?
1: I mean, I feel like all of us have read a story in our lives and felt just this enormous sense of hope, almost like we were entering another world. I mean, you know, as a kid, I felt this when I was reading Tolkien. You read The Lord of the Rings, and all mm. of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I mean, you know, and of course, um, you know, any any scripture that you read is gives you that kind of sense. But, but it really goes beyond that. I mean, um, when you read a lot of literature, you just find heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, you find courage. You feel bigger than yourself. One of the very earliest uh, uh, technologies that uh, writers invented is a kind of courage technology, which makes you feel like you're part of a bigger story. And, you know, we know that when the brain feels like it's part of a bigger narrative, it becomes willing to sacrifice itself. Hmm. And we see this all the time where people do heroic acts. Well, that's not logical to do that act, right? You're risking yourself. Why would you do that? Well, because I'm part of something bigger than myself. Well, where is that bigger thing? I don't see that anywhere, you know? It's that story you tell. I'm part of this group. I'm part of this team. I sacrifice, or I'm part of this family, you know? Hmm. And so much of the problems that I had as a young man were feeling alone, were feeling isolated, were feeling like I was not part of something bigger, was feeling that I had to do everything by myself, and I hope we've all had the experience at some time in our life of pulling a book off a shelf and feeling connected to the writer mm-hmm. and feeling like, okay, there's actually somebody who understands me. And because there's somebody who understands me, I am actually part of something bigger. Even if I don't know what that is or where it's going, I I feel connected to something bigger. And I think on a very primordial level, that's the kind of basic entry ramp to a lot of what literature can do.
0: As you are talking, I know you talk about loneliness in the book, which maybe we can we can get to. I can't remember... Uh, I think it's less in and, less and your lonely. So, maybe we can talk about that briefly. But it was interesting as, as you were talking, I got this sort of um, a different perspective on something like psychedelics, which in many ways brings people into a connection with something larger, but also simultaneously changes their story. You know, I think a lot of people come back from a psychedelic experience, whether it's ayahuasca or psilocybin or whatever it is, and their story has shifted sometimes in a way that they almost can't explain. You know, it's an unconscious shift that's taken place where they've had this very symbolic experience and they it's almost like in the act of telling the story of what they went through and what they saw and what they experienced and what they felt, something inside of them shifts. And so... I'm. I don't know if you've ever kind of gone down that that path before, but can you speak to? Is there a correlation there? Is there a correlation between psychedelics and our story shifting?
1: Yeah. So I actually talk. One of the chapters of the book I talk about literary psychedelics, and I talk about uh, how there are certain kinds of poems. Mm. That have a psychedelic effect. They actually affect our visual cortex in the same way that psychedelics do. They produce that intense sense of rebooting and just profound sense of, of spiritual connection. Um, I mean, for, for me, an example of one of those you know, Terrence Malick is a filmmaker. He's pretty good at creating psychedelic experiences. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has a favorite song or, 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 or movie that has maybe had that kind of trippy effect on them. And that is associated with these intense feelings of meaning. And to your point, what's really important about those is they are narrative interrupters. So you feel caught mm. in your own narrative. You feel a prisoner of your own story. And this is a very common thing where we basically feel like, well, you know, um, the narrative that has led me up to this point uh, is, is the product of my world. You know, therefore, the forces that drive it are bigger than me. Therefore, I can't change it. You know, therefore, I'm in a kind of tragic story arc. And what if something just comes in and shatters that narrative and just frees you? And then all of a sudden, you can start a new one. And There's another chapter in the book where I talk about optimism Um, and a lot of stories in a less psychedelic way can create optimism by doing the same thing, which is that if you're in a situation where bad things have been happening to you, your brain will look around and say, well, bad things are happening to me for a reason because bad things come from bad things. And if bad Mm -hmm. things come from bad things and I'm in a bad place now, then more bad things are going to come from the bad place than I am now. And again, you get caught in what's called fatalism or catastrophizing. And there's a lot of stories out there, you know, Willy Wonka and the F- Chocolate Factory is a good example for our kids, you know, where for no reason at all, something good just happens. Mm. And bam, that just smashes the narrative. And literature can do that to you. You can just pick a book off the shelf. It has no relationship to your own life narrative. You know, the story that's happening in that book has no relationship to you. And then the moment you start reading it, you're in that narrative. So your narrative is completely ruptured and restarted. Mm. And just that basic sense of possibility that I think we all get when we walk into a library or a movie theater or whatever, that sense that it can all change. That's another one of literature's most healing primordial experiences.
0: Fascinating. You know, I I wanted to go back and just sort of say something that you said before was that, you know, if somebody is so beholden to their story, to their inner story, there's almost nothing you can do to support them. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of men over the years who whether it's one on one or in a group environment that their narrative is so ingrained it's so entrenched it's it's so much their identity and their ego that it's almost like the very first step of the confrontation i guess you could say is bringing them into contact with the reality of the story that they've adopted you know it's like you don't want to get out of this you don't think you're capable of getting out of this you know and ha- and sort of like bringing them into relationship with that and and without that there's almost no progress that's possible because every other nor- narrative or story is immediately rejected every other possibility is immediately rejected because this story has such an emphatic grip on that human being and it's so wild so you know for the people that are listening to this how do we begin to maybe self-recognize what our internal narratives are so that we can confront them, we can work with them, we can shift them? And is that even a a possibility or am I getting ahead of myself?
1: No, you're not. Everything you're saying is so powerful and so profound, and I am so completely in alignment with it. So I think we have to identify why people don't want to change their narratives. And at the root of most of it is fear. (laughs) Because, you know, for example, you know, if you've got yourself in a fatalistic mindset or a kind of almost nihilistic mindset at times, you know, where you're just like, I can't be helped. I can't change. I have to do this. This is the only way. A lot of that is because you don't want to get hurt mm. worse because you've got yourself into this place where, you know what, I've tried changing before and it didn't work. This happens a lot. I work with veterans, uh, people who are suffering from PTSD. Um, you know, they don't want to hope because they think they're just setting themselves up to get hurt mm. worse. And it feels safer to say, it's never going to change, I'm lost, I'm just going to kind of hold on here. Because it takes a lot of courage to actually start to try and change your own narrative because you're opening yourself up uh, to a lot of vulnerability, a lot of change, and you can really get hurt. And so, you know, the first thing that I always do with individuals is I take them on what I would call a kind of resilience or anti-fragility narrative. And I, I say, I want you to look back at moments of your life where you've changed, where you've grown, where something negative happened to you and you responded positively. And we can always find those moments. Those moments are always there Mm -hmm. for all of us. And then I want to kind of have them start to build on those moments. And the more they start to build on those moments and find their inner resilience, their inner anti-fragility, themselves getting stronger through damage, basically, the more that positive mindset starts to take over. And then the more they actually start wanting to change their own story because it's fun, because it's exciting, because actually that is what allows you to dare and grow and take risks and become a better person. So I generally don't go in there and try and tell them to change their story. I do the opposite. I go in there and try and find those seeds of resilience that are just kind of there mm. under the surface, and then try and bloom those. Yeah, it's
0: it's interesting because I like I think in some ways I look. I mean, I look back at myself, and uh, just to use an example, but I, like again, there were times where uh, the like Stockholm syndrome uh, sort of uh, and to the story, and I didn't want to break free from it in some way. You know that there was like a comfort and a safety in that narrative, even though it wasn't serving me, you know even though it wasn't I knew it wasn't healthy, I knew it wasn't good for me, I knew it was damaging for myself and the people around me. Um, and so I, I like that approach in the in the sense of being able to look at other examples in your life where you have been really resilient, where you've uh, maybe executed with with behaviors that are counter to what the narrative is to start to build some momentum on that side. One of the things that you talk about in the book, you have a, a chapter. I mean, maybe just for the for the the listener, uh, the book is "What's the 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature." Um, one of the chapters you you talk about anger and our relationship to justice, and um, I, I think you to the science of apology, which I definitely want to get into. But can you can you talk to us a little bit about what? literature and the this, this story that you tell, uh, what literature has about anger and how we can start to face it, understand it, etc.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, anger is a kind of growing problem uh, in, <laughs> in our yeah. world today. And, you know, anger actually comes from a good place. I mean, first of all, it's, it, it's not a problem to be angry in the short term. I mean, anger is a self-defense mechanism. It's because something you care about is under mm. threat and in order to kind of protect you want to push back and then push you know against that thing that's that's causing the threat the problem is chronic anger if you're existing in a state of chronic anger, it has extremely negative consequences for your brain and for your health and for the people around you. Um, it causes burnout. It causes cynicism. Uh, it causes a loss of motivation. causes a feeling of profound disempowerment. And, you know, you're just not a fun person to be around if you're angry <laughs> all the time. So there's all these negative things about being chronically angry. And so one of the things we really have to learn to do is make that hard shift is to say, okay, this is making me angry. Something is upsetting me. Why is it upsetting me? It's upsetting me because something I care about is under threat. I have to identify why that thing is under threat. And then I have to shift out of anger into saying, okay, what is a calm way that I can help that thing that is threatened? Now, a lot of times when we get angry in like personal relationships or things like that, it's because we ourselves feel threatened. We feel threatened by somebody else, you know. And so actually the trick there is not only just to say, okay, I got to get out of anger. It's to say, okay, why do I feel threatened by this other person? Most of the time that person is not physically threatening us. I mean, that's a very small percentage of times. If the person is physically threatening you, you should leave. I mean, that's the answer, right? Get out of there. Um, But if it's more a kind of sense of, oh, I feel like my identity is being threatened or I feel like my autonomy is being threatened or I feel like something is being taken away from me, paradoxically, the answer is actually Mm -hmm. empathy. It's actually to to say, okay, actually the strong choice here is to get into that other person's head, think about why they're motivated to do what they're doing. Now, you do that not because you're going to agree with them. Empathy isn't about agreeing with the other person or becoming the other person or any of those kinds of things. It's about understanding that person so that you can come up with a plan together. It's to say, okay, now I understand where you're coming from. Now I'm going to explain to you where I'm coming from, and we're going to find a way to marry those two narratives. We're going to marry those two mm-hmm. stories. And that occurs in personal relationships all the time. I mean, the secret to being successful in a personal relationship is to understand, you know, the other person and figure out a way to come together. But it also occurs in work. Many of the people I work with are very angry at their bosses, you know, they're like, oh, my boss is such an idiot, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Well, if you can take time and think about where your boss is coming from, why, the, you know, because your boss has needs- your boss is doing the things for some kind of reason and if you can figure out a plan or a strategy that advances what you want but also advances what your boss wants mm. you win and so that's why anger into empathy into planning into strategy is the kind of pivot for success as opposed to anger into more anger into fury into rage into revenge you know into 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 you know fantasies of, of violence and so on and so forth so that's really where that where that all comes from and again you know literature has known this for thousands of years, and just has wonderful, great ways of helping us develop empathy and develop productive responses mm-hmm. to conflict. And
0: does apology fit in that? Because I know that you talk about the the science of apology in in the book, and so I'd love to just to dig into. I think you talk about the story of Job, if I'm not mistaken. That might be a different part. If I'm, I'm I might be getting that wrong.
1: No, that's exactly right. Yeah, so basically, um, the reason I start talking about the apologies is is because I start talking about the fact that before humans invented literature, they invented another technology for generating empathy. And that was Mm. the apology. Because an apology is not something that exists in a state of nature – uh, you know, you don't see insects apologizing to each other or trees <laughs> apologizing to each other, you know. I mean, at some point, a human had to invent an apology. I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm going to apologize. And, and actually, when someone apologizes to you, it activates these empathy circuits in your brain, which makes you more inclined to say, oh, okay, I think they did that for a reason. And now they realize that that reason was perhaps incorrect and they're going to change and so on and so forth. And so it allows for these moments of connection. Now, having said that, there's a problem with an apology. What's the problem with an apology? Well, people can lie, Just because I apologize to you doesn't mean I'm sincerely sorry, right? I mean, I can say, oh, I'm so sorry I did that. Then I can invade your Mm. country again, you know? Oh, I'm so sorry, you know, then I can invade again. So the human brain, even when someone apologizes, only inclines towards empathy. But it doesn't automatically go to empathy. And an apology only works really when we're uncertain about the person's motives. You know, if we we have a strong reason to suspect they're being dishonest, the apology won't work. And so apologies don't generate empathy all the time. The reason that literature is so amazing is literature provides you with direct access to other people's Mm. minds. So think of all the times you've read a novel and you've been inside that other person's head and you know exactly what they're thinking. And one of the most common things the characters feel is a sense of regret. They're essentially apologizing. And when they have that feeling of regret, it generates empathy in our own brain and we understand how that different character is thinking. Even if that character is doing things like we would Mm. never do – we develop empathy for them, and it allows us to think, okay, now I can figure out how to go forward with this person. And in the, in the book, I sort of trace the development of this through Greek tragedy, through Shakespeare, you know, and I show you how all of these forms of literature make us feel empathetic towards people who we really would not ordinarily like. So the Greeks, the Athenians, they were Democrats. Oedipus makes you feel empathy towards Oedipus. He's a tyrant, He's the opposite of a Democrat, you know, um, but it makes us feel empathy for him. Shakespeare makes us feel empathy for Richard Third, who's a murderous, lunatic king. You know, we feel empathy for him. And, and by helping us develop empathy for, for people who are really different from us, who threaten us, who make us feel scared, literature puts us in this power position where we can say, I can do this. Mm. Even though I feel threatened in this relationship, even though I feel threatened by my boss, even though I feel threatened by these people who are different from me. I have the power of me to feel empathy. Because I can feel empathy, that means I can work with them. We can make a plan. We can become stronger together. And we can maybe even become friends together. And so that's kind of the magic way literature moves that engine and helps create society out of anger.
0: Yeah, it's really uh, it's really interesting. I, I was writing about this. I have a book coming out in January of 23. And I was writing about this notion of of forgiveness, you know, and an apology, I think, I mean, uh, apologizing and forgiveness are, are quite interlinked and interconnected. But this notion that in, in biblical sense, forgiveness meant wiping the debt clean. It was about letting go of the debt that you think somebody owed you or, or that, uh, that you owed somebody else. And it's interesting because when we feel like, when we feel like somebody owes us, we act from that sense of indebtedness. You know, the way that we treat them, right? Because that's part of the story. It's like, well, you owe me. And because you owe me, then you should do X, Y, and Z. And you should be acting like this. And you should be speaking to me like this. And you shouldn't be doing that. And it's so it's so interesting to just see that narrative that comes in, right? That, that breaks down the connection between us and another human being. When we're holding on to that, when we're holding on to that narrative, yeah, go, yeah. go ahead,
1: yeah, no, exactly, and I think the important thing there is to realize that we're in control of that narrative if, if we want to, yeah, you know, I mean, if if we want to be in a position of anger towards that person, resentment towards that person, we can, but we can also change that narrative if we want to, and I think that's really the important realization here is that all the narratives in our bra- our brain are there evolutionarily to help us, and so if a narrative is getting in your way. If a story is making you angry and seek revenge and compensation and making you unable to forgive, and that's actually hurting you in the long run, and it would be better just to wipe the slate clean, to do the biblical thing, to forgive, to forget, to move on, you can do that. Because ultimately, it's not about what's true and what's right and wrong. Our brain didn't evolve that way. Our brain evolved to say, okay, this is the narrative that's better for me and better for the people around me, that's, that's healthier. I can change it. I can shift it. And the Bible is full of stories, including the story of Job, that are helpful at getting our brain to forgive and making us realize that really on some level, even though it's divine uh, to seek justice, it's also divine to have mercy, to forgive, mm-hmm. to move on.
0: Yeah, so good. Well, I think we're just going to close off with maybe just this last question. I'm going to give you a prompt and it's, it's from the book and we'll just see where where this goes. Tell us a little bit about Maya Angelou's discovery and what it had to do with our relationship to wisdom and believing in ourselves.
1: So Maya Angelou is one of my favorite writers. And her main invention, which goes all the way back, it goes back to the Stoics. It goes even before that to some of the earliest literature ever written. Tahotep, sort of this Egyptian wise man writing under the shadows of the of the earliest pyramids. Her realization is that ultimately you can change yourself. Mm. And changing yourself seems highly threatening it seems highly dangerous you know because if i change myself then what am i and we're confronted in all these moments in our life where life is pressuring us to change and we feel like well if i change am i still myself am i not someone else don't i have to stand here and what my angela points out is no if you identify the core that is yourself and if that core comes in the form of certain values maybe like love or family or freedom, or anything that you identify as one of your core values, then if you can strengthen and hold on to that core value while changing your behavior, mm. you actually become more of yourself. And so don't be afraid of changing your behavior, because changing your behavior is actually the way to deepen who you already were from the beginning. And the wonderful thing about reading Maya Angelou, is she does that through her writing. I mean, she just changes constantly. And she encourages all of us to identify, well, okay, what really is at the core of me? What is my center? And then how can I strengthen that through change? And how can I have the courage to shift the behaviors in my life, but become more of the thing that I've always wanted to be from the beginning?
0: Outstanding. Outstanding, man. Well, I wish that we had another hour to get into this because this is, I mean, I, I would have gone down the, the AI and storytelling rabbit hole for a while, I would imagine. But um, listen, Angus, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing, and. For the listener that's out there that wants to go and learn a little bit more about you, I would really recommend going to check out WonderWorks. It's a phenomenal book. Um, But if people are wanting to know a little bit more about you, where should they go?
1: They can find me on LinkedIn. They can also find me at angusfletcher.co. And there's a lot of my work there with various organizations. There's the AI stuff. There's the work I do with special operations, all kinds of things if, if people are interested.
0: Outstanding. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. For everyone that's out there listening, share this episode with just one person or more that you know will enjoy it it's a phenomenal conversation with some great wisdom from Angus here. And uh, until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.